Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by a man who has served his country with great distinction. The man who you are about to meet served as a naval officer in World War II, a U.S. senator as a member of the Conservative Party, the first and only member of that party to ever be elected to the Senate, I might add, Undersecretary of State in the Reagan administration, President of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Munich, and as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And I, I feel as if I should say he's also a three-time Cy Young Award winner because the list just runs on and on, but I kid. But today I'm joined by Judge James Buckley, author of the new book, Saving Congress from Itself, Emancipating the States and Empowering Their People. Judge Buckley, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. So the first question I have, Judge, is in these days of Cromnibus, for example, where many conservatives are beside themselves at the state of liberty in America, and it feels at times that our Constitution is effectively in tatters, if it's even considered at all, why is your book vital reading for every American? Uh, I think it's vital because it's focusing on a category of legislation that has imposed extraordinary costs on us, wasted money, but most fundamentally it has changed the way we govern ourselves. I'm talking about uh, programs that offer federal subsidies to states and localities for a vast uh, range of activities that are the exclusive business of the states. So you have the federal government, uh, and those subsidies come with regulations. Uh, yes, you are doing, the states will be uh, building a road or uh, educating kids and so forth with um, uh, subsidies from the federal government, but they have to follow the federal rule book. Um, and, and, and this, among many other things, not only does it impose the cost, but it means that the citizens who are the supposed beneficiaries of these programs uh, have no say in how the money is to be spent or what priorities are to be set. Uh, these programs uh, uh, have become the principal source of pork for the federal government, for members of Congress. So they have uh, grown from, when I was elected to the Senate, $24 billion was spent in this way. Today, $641 billion are going to be distributed by these programs in the coming year. And that's one out of every $6 of federal spending. And I want to repeat, it is for purposes that are the exclusive business of the states. So in other words... Grants and aid, which you're discussing, they're the third biggest line item in the federal budget, and they also represent, if you want to look at it from a perspective of the Constitution, a usurpation of states' rights and, and state prerogatives, uh, and, and effectively um, a violation of federalist principles. So like all, it seems, progressive reforms, grants and aid, it seems, based on your book, stem from court decisions made during the Roosevelt era, and then the actual application of the ability to issue grants and aid under LBJ. Talk a little bit about the origin of grants and aid and how they've exploded over the decades. All right. This involves uh, <clears throat> an interpretation back in 1937 by the court 
of the Constitution's spending clause. Now, that clause states that Congress has the right to raise money and use it to, and I quote from the Constitution, pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. The mischief lies in those words, general welfare, in the decision I speak of. Uh, and I will give you the most recent reiteration of, uh, of that holding. Uh, it says that Congress is able to spend the money, quote, to induce the states to adopt policies that the federal government itself could not impose so long as it is doing that in pursuance of what it believes advances the uh, general welfare. The effect of this is that it invites Congress to dabble in matters that are the exclusive business of governors and city councils and to offer money as bribes so long as the states adopt Congress's understanding of what is the best way to handle what are the responsibilities of the states and localities. So it totally buries the concept of uh, federalism, which was an allocation, a division of different governmental responsibilities uh, that served us well for the first 150 years of our country. It's, and, and basically, federalism means that those governmental bodies that are closest to you will deal with those uh, uh, issues that, that most directly affect you. Uh, so that that has now been thrown out. Now, there is a technical uh, rationale here. Those programs are, uh, are, are offers of help that the states do not have to accept. So the theory is that the, the states voluntarily accept the money with all the strings that are attached. But in as a practical matter, as an economic matter, it is almost impossible to reject these offers because, first of all, money from Washington is regarded as free, even though all it involves is a return to you of the money you've sent to Washington as, as taxes. Furthermore, the reason we have so many of these programs now, uh, there are now uh, 1,100 of them, is that it becomes the easiest way for members of Congress to scratch their constituents back. It's the modern form of pork. Uh, member, members of elected offices are very anxious to get close to their constituents. So nowadays you'll see members of Congress spending every weekend uh, among their uh, people. But the constituents aren't talking about foreign policy. They're not talking about uh, debt reform. Uh, they're talking about the local roads, the schools, the, uh, the job conditions, uh, all of those things that are the business of the state governments but none of the business of Congress. And so one of the impacts of all of this is that members of Congress are devoting a substantial part, a major part of their time, on issues that are none of their business and therefore not spending that time on the difficult problems such as immigration and others that only Congress can, can deal with. 
No, Judge Buckley, I, I don't think you would get any argument from our audience uh, against your plan to effectively abolish grants and aid. You know, I think it's common sense for any American, uh, even the most progressive one, to understand that there are serious issues with a farmer in Iowa being subsidized by a physician in Florida, for example. On that basis alone, it would seem common sense that abolishing grants and aid would be something worth considering. Now, that said, how would we actually go about accomplishing your plan today, given the political constraints? Uh, those uh, f constraints are absolutely formidable. You, you're fighting the political establishment, but if I hope my book will start educating people, start the debate going. It is so easy to demonstrate on the basis of 50-year record that individuals as taxpayers and as citizens who want to have some say in how their own government is operated have everything to be to be gained by abolishing all of those federal programs and then readjusting the tax at the federal level and the state levels to enable those uh, those uh, state responsibilities to be financed entirely by taxes raised at the local and state level. In that way, citizens will know exactly what the cost of these programs are and decide what they want, uh, how they want them to be designed and have some say as to what priorities will be set. If we can get the argument going, if the education can start, we have learned in the past that an aroused citizenry can achieve miracles. Now, there's something else here involved, and that is if we can f again focus on the motivation that Congress has in generating all these programs, that it is a form of pork. Uh, in time, we can stigmatize the project, and there has been a recent example of how this has accomplished a huge reform. Uh, you can remember the word earmarks. Uh, they were prevalent uh, until just the last three or four years, until a few senators so stigmatized the earmarks as a violation of every basic principle of government that Congress finally mustered the courage and self-discipline to abolish them. So progress can be made, but what is necessary is that the people at large understand exactly the damage that has been done by all these programs. So in other words, if there's a groundswell of public support of abolishing grants and aid, then politicians won't feel as if they're voting against their own self-interest. They'll realize that it's in their political self-interest to reflect the beliefs of their constituents. Exactly, exactly. How would your proposal affect the lives of everyday Americans? For the person who's tuned out of the system, doesn't really care all that much about the concept of federalism, it's abstract, and they're going about their daily lives, trying to put food on the table, get, have a good education for their family, how would your proposal affect their lives? Well, it it'll, should eliminate an awful lot of frustration. Uh, today, uh, if uh, someone uh, in a, a town believes that money is being spent, don't forget, even though there are federal subsidies, the, 
the, the total, uh, the, the largest share of these programs are paid by local stack, uh, taxpayers. But the, the taxpayer who says, I don't like the way this bridge is being designed or it ought to be somewhere else. He goes to uh, his local representative or the mayor of his town and starts complaining. And that mayor says, but I'm helpless because the only way I can spend this money, which, is, uh, which includes some dollars coming from Washington, is in, in accord with federal regulations, and I am powerless to change those regulations, so you have to take it or leave it. So the citizen is frustrated because he likes to think of himself as uh, self-governing, as uh, being influenced, uh, able to influence uh, uh, the quality of his school, the quality of his roads, the quality of job training programs, you name it. And he is unable to. With my reform, you would throw 100% of the responsibilities for everything that happens at the state and local levels back on the people you have elected. And if you don't like the kind of job they're doing, you can throw them out at the next election. Uh, that's restoring self-government in its purest form. Now, you also propose several other, you call them ancillary reforms which would sort of buttress what you would accomplish in terms of restoring federalism and constitutional order. One of them is term limits. Question, playing devil's advocate, why should we want to throw out those members of Congress who are best? So, for example, let's assume Senator Mike Lee from Utah was a billionaire. He was the same principled person he's always been, but never had to worry about raising money or even ever being tempted to develop policies to pay off his constituents. Wouldn't we want him in office for decades? Uh, yes, you can always have stars, but also you have a system which keeps the worst people in, in, in office for decades. Uh, the problem we have that has happened in our country is with the growth of the federal government, with it becoming involved in everything, uh, what used to be considered a privilege in which you'd spend a few years serving your country and then going back to your regular uh, uh, activities as a farmer or a businessman or, or, or whatever has become a career. Uh, people go into elective office as the careers that will keep them occupied for the rest of their lives and they start spending their time protecting their career by making compromises, by rubbing constituent backs uh, in order to ensure their chances of re-election. They also now spend inordinate amounts of time uh, on the telephone raising money to finance their next election, and so it goes. So you have changed the focus of the people serving in Congress from people who are taking a, a diversion from their normal lives to serve the country and do the best they can for the country to people who, yes, they have the best intentions and know how what they think is good for the country, but have as a primary objective to ensure their next election, and therefore they avoid things that could be problematical, uh, issues have, that nevertheless have to be faced, the kind of issues that somehow rather go in year after year 
we know that sooner or later we have to do something about the design of Social Security, the design of Medicare, because the money won't be there uh, uh, to, to pay the bills. But Congress is will never face those issues uh, be, uh, because they want to avoid votes that would be controversial the next time they're up for re-election. That's why I believe that uh, uh, 12 years of service in the Senate, 12 years in the House, would allow people to serve their country but would not change, but it, they would be doing it with the right frame of mind and not as people who want to be there for the rest of their lives. And in most of our uh, history, uh, uh, during the, the, the 19th century, when uh, the Senate earned the reputation of being the world's greatest deliberative body, very, very few senators served more than two terms. And I think it's safe to say that it is no longer the world's greatest deliberative body. It doesn't deliberate anymore. It doesn't have time. It's on a treadmill. Now, Judge Buckley, another area with which you are probably the most knowledgeable person of all, being that you were the plaintiff in Buckley v. Vallejo, a landmark campaign finance reform case that went in front of the Supreme Court, you also propose a reform with respect to campaign finance. Speak a little bit about that and make your best case to those who are skeptical, populist voters, those who feel that there's a corrupting influence of money in politics. Make your best case that there should be no caps on individual contributions to candidates. The problem we face today is the more intrusive government gets, the more it, it affects every detail in our lives, the more uh, important it is for people to get involved in politics. There, uh, the, the one way to do it is to make contributions to to candidates who you, be, who you believe support your views and represent your understanding of how the government should be should work. Now, uh, people say, well, uh, and and incidentally, and, and in today's conditions, that requires buying space on television, uh, newspaper ads, you name it. You know, we're all familiar with those expenditures. Uh, now people say, well, then uh, you've got you, you, the wealthy are going to buy off uh, uh, the Congress, and uh, in effect, you're corrupting the whole process. Well, first of all, there are wealthy people on both sides of the equation. You're, you're not going to uh, squeeze out at different points of view uh, uh, by providing voluntarily. Uh, help for the people whom you believe represent the best interests of the country. The one uh, the reason that was advanced by the Supreme Court for placing a limit on individual contributions was because they gave the opportunity to corrupt or gave the appearance of corrupting. Well, there are other ways of, of determining whether people are corrupted. Did they change their, their, their did you buy their votes? Uh, but it, it is a serious charge, and, and I suggest that there is one way in which you can meet that argument, and that is to require that all contributions be uh, uh, be anonymous. Uh, all contributions above, say, you know, you know, thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. 
uh, the kinds of levels that will not corrupt anybody. And that can be done simply by having uh, uh, the v various uh, candidates set up a, 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 an account with a bank, uh, and the, the money will go from the contributor to the bank, which will package contributions and send it uh, uh, to, uh, to the candidate. And uh, uh, any violation of such a uh, anonymity uh, uh, would be subject to a very serious uh, a penalty. I think that's the easiest way to make that argument. But but also, you know, people start saying that uh, uh, it's outrageous that we are spending all this money on what is, in fact, the most important single event, namely our elections, in the life of, of the citizens. Uh, no more money was spent in the last uh, presidential elections than is spent routinely by Pre uh, Procter & Gamble every year in its ads. So it is not a disproportionate amount of money considering the importance of what is at stake. There's also one argument that I haven't really heard proffered by many people, and I'm curious as to your take on its merits. There is a significant amount of money, although relative to other areas, really not all that much money in politics in federal elections, in large part because there's a perception that there's so much to be bought. If you aren't interested, uh, if you're a political interest like a business, either in the form of subsidies or regulations to keep out competitors or tax breaks, or conversely, trying to hold off politicians who are seeking to implement policies detrimental to your group. Shouldn't the public actually really look at government and support a massive reduction in the size and scope of government if they want money to leave the political marketplace? Because if there isn't something to be bought, less people will invest in that marketplace. What's your take on that argument? <laughs> well, uh, you're talking about all of the special favors that businesses get by lobbying. Uh, and uh, th uh, yes, so long as government is uh, so intrusive that its regulations can favor one group of uh, entrepreneurs over another group, you are going to get people uh, using their money to try to buy influence. Uh, the only answer to that is to slim down the reach of government so that it is not in a position to uh, make this favor or that favor. This is one of the great arguments in favor of dramatic simpli simplification of our tax codes, of our business tax codes, to eliminate the opportunities for special favors. Judge Buckley, you've been generous with your time. I, I just have one last question. You served as a senator theoretically at a time when America relatively had its act together. So you have some perspective to bring to the table here. And also, as a jurist, uh, a keen eye on constitutional issues. How bad are things in America today when you look at the societal issues, the government, the foreign policy, and, and unregarding all of it, our culture? Would you say that it is worse than the Carter era? Would you say that it's worse than the FDR era, the Wilson era? Contextualize, <laughs> where, where is the country today? We are in bad shape, I'd say that. Uh, incidentally, when I was in the Senate, we had something called Watergate and so on. Those were, were not happy days. Uh, 
but we have had a deterioration. And I think one of the concerns I have is that Americans are no longer taught in school about their own country. Why are we, do we have the Constitution that's structured the way it is? What were the dangers of uh, to individual freedom that that instrument was designed to to, uh, to uh, uh, guard against? And so that I think that the people in uh, when they go, first of all there's, a, there's this tremendous apathy. People are not voting in the numbers they ought to vote, but when they are voting, they are tending these days to think of. How does it benefit me rather than how does it benefit my country? And then when you go outside the United States, you talk about the, the, the world at large, and we see the stuff that's happening in the Middle East uh, today, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, there the problem is the leadership at the very top. Uh, we still have uh, military forces that are, that are larger than anybody else's. But we don't have a a foreign policy that understands how our influence has to be used in order to to uh, to, to prevent or discourage assaults on on our not just our values but on our basic interests. Uh, <clears throat> We have now this whole Islamic uh, outburst where people are now attacking us in our own country and and uh, plotting today on how to recreate what they did in 9-11. Uh, but we don't seem to have a foreign policy that understands how to effectively use the power and influence we have to uh, to, uh, to to defeat those influences. That's well stated, and, and so since you bring up education, I take it that you're not convinced that Common Core is the remedy to all that ails us. Well, uh, I can see, t uh, you know, people working together to try to get the best possible standards in uh, education, but uh, uh, you now have the federal government bringing its uh, monetary pressures to bear to force people in t uh, states to. Um, to adopt this one approach to education, which may or may not be the best. And there are a lot of reasons to believe that some of the texts that are being, uh, coming, uh, that are being uh, recommended uh, for the Common Core uh, have a lot to be desired. What you, uh, what you have to recognize that the best guarantees of, of good education is to encourage state and localities to seek out the best way to teach their particular populations uh, how to read, write, calculate, analyze, and and excel. Uh, there's no guarantee that a you put this way. I'm saying saying you, it is not in the interest of good education to set up a system that freezes out all competition. Well, Judge Buckley, uh, I would submit that you're being too reasonable on this issue. Well. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the name of the book is Saving Congress from Itself, Emancipating the States and Empowering Their People. The author is Judge James Buckley. Judge Buckley, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you.
For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.